Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop talks about the silent or quiet prayers the priest says before and during Mass. Then it's on to listener-submitted questions on topics including the upcoming Synod for the Amazon, the most common myth about Catholicism, and whether or not a confession can be heard over the phone. If you have a question you'd like Bishop to answer on a future episode, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or download the free Redeemer Radio app and select Ask Your Questions. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop and a special thank you to Bishop for joining us last week at our share and all those that supported us, donated, especially during Bishop's Hour. Uh, thank you to the Secretary of Communications, Jennifer, for joining us. Yeah, it was great to have Jennifer on, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Getting to know her. She, she wasn't too excited about it ahead of time. She's, but then she, she enjoyed it. She likes to be in the background, she says. Yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's always good to... Well, I need my communications director That's right. in the foreground. That's though. right. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's good. She's great. Well, one of the things I want to talk about is about the Mass. We did a three-part series on the history of the Mass that got a lot of positive feedback. That aired in June of 2018. That was June 6th, 13th, and 20th. And we just broke down the Mass in three different parts. You did a great job explaining that. So along those lines, thought maybe you could explain some of the different silent or quiet prayers that the priest says before and also during the Mass. I think a lot of people might not be aware of this, uh, including that before Mass, there's some optional prayers that a priest can say while putting on the vestments, all the different vestments that uh, the priest wears. Yeah, well, for each of the vestments that we wear. And, and you know what might be interesting, Kyle, is do you know why we even wear vestments? Why don't we just, you know, in some Protestant churches, they just have like a suit and tie or whatever, or a clerical suit. I think it might be interesting for the listeners to think about why we have vestments. That Yeah, I, I mean, I assume it's to kind of take us into a different place and a different, like, when we see things that look different, we associate it with a, 
a different uh, behavior, maybe? Right, right. They're sacred vestments, so they're not things that we wear in ordinary life. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a liturgical character. So, although it's interesting at the beginning, when you look at the early centuries of the church, um, the vestments that were used really were the ancient Greek and Roman clothes that people wore, secular clothes. But what they did was for the liturgy, they would use better materials. They wore the best clothing uh, at mm-hmm. the liturgy. But then as uh, as uh, history continued, what they wore changed, especially when you had the barbarian invasions and you had other cultures. So what people wore, their clothing changed. The different uh, fashions changed. And the church kept the, the Greek and Roman vestments for their public worship. So that kind of then became distinguishing it mm-hmm. from ordinary clothes or what we would call secular clothing. By probably around the 8th century, they really were definitive. That's what we have today. So the basic things, the alb and the stole and the, you know, the cincture and the chasuble really go back to the Greek and Roman times, but especially the 8th century when it was pretty much settled that these are the vestments for the clergy, whether it be a bishop or a priest or a deacon. Mm-hmm. Um, might be helpful to think about the different vestments that the the priest wears. And there are, as you mentioned, prayers that can be said when a priest is putting on the vestments, mm-hmm. but it's not obligatory. In other words, it's optional. Okay. Um, in the old rite, the extraordinary form of the Roman rite, the the Missal of of uh, Saint Pius V, I think it was required that as a priest put these vestments on, that they said these particular prayers. But now, in the new order, the Novus Ordo, the ordinary form of the Roman rite that we use today, the Missal of Pope Saint Paul VI it becomes optional whether to use these prayers. So basically the first thing that a priest would do is, is wash his hands. Uh, And that's not just for hygiene. Uh (laughs) Um, It was also symbolic, you know, that you're moving from the profane to the sacred. Mm -hmm. So the world of sin to the sanctuary of God. Mm -hmm. So you wash your hands. It's kind of like you can think of how, Moses removed his sandals before the burning bush. Okay, so we, sure. uh, and the prayer in English, the English translation of it would be, give virtue to my hands, O Lord, that being cleansed from all stain, I might serve you with purity of mind and body. Hmm. So the idea of moving from that, from sin to something sacred, the cleansing. The first thing that would be put on would be an amice, and that's a rectangular linen cloth. It has two strings, and it's placed over the shoulders and around the, the neck, and then we tie the strings around the waist. Basically, it's to cover your everyday clothing. So if you put an amice on, if I put an amice on, it, it goes in my neck, and it covers like the Roman collar in that. Okay. So now there's a lot of priests don't wear an amice. I wear it when I need to. If the alb is not going to cover the top of my shirt or my collar, 
I'll put an Amazon uh-huh. because you really, the people shouldn't see any of your secular clothing. Hmm. So Makes now sense. some priests are more careful about this than others. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you see a priest, you can see the collar, you can see his black shirt and collar at the top, mm-hmm. but really you're not supposed to be able to see any of his profane clothing. Hmm. Um, and what a priest would say uh, as he's putting on the Amos is, a prayer, place upon me, O Lord, the helmet of salvation, that I may overcome the assaults of the devil. And I love that. That's right out of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the uh-huh. helmet of salvation, yeah. St. Paul writes about, about. So, the Amos is understood that way. You know, it's a helmet that it's supposed to protect someone, helmet of salvation from uh the devil and the temptations of the mm-hmm. devil or evil thoughts or evil desires, whatever, to protect one from that during the celebration of the liturgy. Sure. So the helmet of salvation, it's a neat thing. And, and again, it's, that's called the amos. I think more people are familiar with the alb. The alb, it's a word that means the color white. It's a long white garment worn by deacons and priests and bishops. And it kind of reminds us of the white garment that was put on all of us when we were baptized. Remember after baptism, sure. uh, one receives a white garment, a symbol of the sanctifying grace that we received in baptism. So it's a symbol of purity, the purity of heart that's necessary in order to enter into uh, the joy of heaven. So this is what the priest says when he puts the alb on. Make me white, O Lord, and cleanse my heart, that being made white in the blood of the Lamb, I may deserve an eternal reward. Hmm. Now, notice that reference to being made white in the blood of the Lamb. That's right out of the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 14. Okay. So, that's a neat prayer. And after putting on the alb, then we put a belt around our waist, which is really a rope or a cord called a cincture. Mm -hmm. A cincture, um, it's usually white, but it can be different colors according to the liturgical season, but it represents the virtue of self-mastery, okay, Uh, which is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, not one of the gifts, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control or Uh self-mastery. So, we gird ourselves, you know, around our waist, we put this rope, it's this cord, and this is the prayer uh, that is said, gird me, O Lord, with the cincture of purity, and quench in my heart the fire of concupiscence, that the virtue of continence and chastity may abide in me. Wow. Yeah. So, neat prayer, too. And then after the cincture, very, very important, is the stole. Now, a priest or bishop puts the stole over both shoulders, Mm -hmm. uh, a deacon just over the left shoulder. Mm -hmm. And I think most people are familiar with the stole because it's the distinctive element of the that someone is ordained okay Mm -hmm. and it's always worn when we celebrate the sacraments or even when we celebrate sacramentals we put on a stole like if i'm doing the blessing of a house or you know if i go to bless a a school or a gymnasium or whatever 
always put a stole on. Okay. And that's just a sacramental. But Bless, of course, like medals and things too. Usually if I'm blessing a rosary or medals, if I would do it in the context of a liturgy, yes, uh -huh. I would wear a stole. But oftentimes people will come up and I don't even have a stole. Okay. So I just bless it. Yeah, so yeah. you're right. It's not always used. But if it's kind of like a liturgical rite, it's not just something that you just do in passing, like the blessing of a medal. Okay. Uh, yeah. Although if I had a stole on me, I'd put it on. Okay. <laughs> um, and of course, the color of the stole depends on the liturgical season or the feast. So... It could be white, it could be green, could be purple, could be red, could be black, you know, depending on the season. This is the prayer when putting on the stole. Lord, restore the stole of immortality, which I lost through the collusion of our first parents. And unworthy as I am to approach thy sacred mysteries, may I yet gain eternal joy. So that's the stole. And then finally, for the priest, the priest puts on the chasuble. And that's only worn for the celebration of Holy Mass. Uh, and only the priest or bishop, because mm -hmm. a bishop is a priest. Whereas a deacon would wear a dalmatic, priest or bishop wears the chasuble. And the chasuble goes back again to, to those early uh, centuries, pretty much completely covers the alb. You can only usually see the alb at the bottom of, you know, below the chasuble. I love the prayer that said when one puts on the chasuble because it's, again, it kind of reminds us of scripture. And this is the, the prayer. O Lord, who has said, my yoke is sweet and my burden light. Grant that I may so carry it as to merit thy grace. So Jesus said, my yoke is sweet and my burden light. Mm -hmm. And that's out of Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, verse 30. So we recall that as we put on the chasuble. So I think the symbolism of the vestments is interesting to know. And the idea of praying when mm -hmm. one is getting dressed for the liturgy is a good thing. I think for a lot of us, it's a little difficult because before mass, we're busy getting ready for the liturgy. So I don't know that many priests use these vesting prayers anymore, but I've been a few sacristies where they're posted. So, uh -huh. you know, that's helpful. And then I think some priests uh, still use them. Yeah. All right. Well, coming up, we'll talk more about the silent prayers at mass that a priest prays and get to your questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop, and we talked about the vestments that a priest wears and some of the optional prayers that he could pray as he puts those on that we would have no clue about because that happens back in the sacristy and we don't even realize it. But there's also other prayers that happen throughout the mass that we might not be aware of that the priest is praying either in his head or maybe whispering. And I've always kind of wondered, I guess maybe in the first place, why do does he have prayers that he's not saying aloud into the microphone in the first place. Yeah. Well, you know, we call these the secret prayers. Did you ever hear that? Okay. The Sounds secret prayers, but the Latin word for secret really is hidden. Okay. So we're to say them with a, a low voice. We're not to just think them. We're, so, we're to whisper them. Okay. Say them in a low voice. 
And um, are you going to get in trouble for talking about them? <laughs> no, they're not okay. secret that way. Okay. <laughs> but you know what? Uh, you know, in the extraordinary forum, the old rite of the mass, uh-huh. there were a lot of parts of the mass that the priest said in a low voice, even the Eucharistic prayer. Hmm. Did you know that in the Latin mass, you couldn't hear it? And, and you know, we have, you know, it's still celebrated today. You know, mm-hmm. We have two Latin mass parishes. So when they pray the Eucharistic prayer, they're secret prayers. Secret in the sense of hidden. Yeah. So you're not hearing it. So anyhow, but now we still have some. Uh-huh. And in the, the new order, the Novus Ordo, and it's important that, that the priests pray these prayers. So I can go through them. Uh-huh. Um, the first secret prayer, hidden prayer that we say, is before we read the gospel, before we proclaim the gospel. If you notice, the priest pauses in front of the altar. Do you ever notice that on his way to the ambo yeah. to proclaim the gospel? It's at that point that he says this prayer, and this is it. Cleanse my heart and my lips, almighty God, that I may worthily proclaim your holy gospel. Huh. So while I'm bowing before the altar, on my way to the ambo, I mm-hmm. say that, cleanse my heart and my lips, O almighty God, that I may worthily proclaim your holy gospel. Okay? Yeah. The next one is during, at the end of the gospel. If you notice when the priest, or the deacon for that matter, kisses the book after proclaiming the gospel, he says very softly, through the words of the gospel, may our sins be wiped away. Hmm. Okay. should mention, too, sometimes if you have a deacon at Mass, they proclaim the gospel. They don't say that prayer before proclaiming the gospel that the priest says. Instead, the deacon bows to the priest or bishop and asks for the blessing. Mm-hmm. And the bishop or priest will say over them, may the Lord be in your heart and on your lips that you may proclaim his gospel worthily and well. So it's very similar to the private prayer that the priest or bishop says if he's the one who's right. going to read the gospel. Right. Yeah. Okay, and uh, so those two, before the gospel and after the gospel, those quiet prayers. Then during the offertory, when the priest or the deacon pours a little water into the chalice of wine, of course, the wine's unconsecrated at that point, he says something in a low voice, And what he says is this, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. So the mixing of the water with the wine reminds us of how Christ, who is divine, humbled himself to share in our humanity. So he also has a human nature, and we're called to share in the divinity of Christ, mm-hmm. who is the one who humbled himself to share in our humanity. So, so that's an important little prayer. Yeah. Also, at the end of the offertory, the priest washes his hands, and usually the server come, two servers come over, one with the crude of water, the other with a little towel. The server will pour some water over the priest's fingers. And while he's doing that, the priest says, Wash me, O Lord, from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Which is really important because he's about to celebrate 
about to do the Eucharistic prayer, mm-hmm. and he's praying to be cleansed from any sin. The next quiet prayer comes during the Lamb of God. You know, while we're singing or reciting the Lamb of God, the Agnus Dei, the priest places a small piece of the host into the chalice. Okay. And he says quietly, may this mingling of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ bring eternal life to us who receive it. Hmm. And then when the Lamb of God is over, the priest joins his hands and says a prayer before he elevates the host and says, behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. First, he says a private prayer. And after he says the private prayer, he genuflects and then holds up the host and the chalice. Now, he has a choice. We have a choice of two prayers. Okay, They're both really beautiful. I love these two prayers. So I'll read both of them for you. Yeah. The first thing the priest could pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, who by the will of the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit, through your death gave life to the world, free me by this, your most holy body and blood, from all my sins and from every evil. Keep me always faithful to your commandments and never let me be parted from you. Wow. That is a beautiful prayer. It's a little longer than the second option. Okay. The second option, I think probably more priests say because it's a little shorter. And But it's this. May the receiving of your body and blood, Lord Jesus Christ, not bring me to judgment and condemnation, but through your loving mercy, be for me protection in mind and body and a healing remedy. Hmm. So again, priest has a choice of which of those two. Then he elevates the host, as I said, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, and everyone responds, Lord, I am not worthy. And then as the priest receives the body of Christ, the host, right beforehand, before he puts it in his mouth, he says, may the body of Christ keep me safe for eternal life. Hmm. And then he puts the host in his mouth. Okay. Then he takes the chalice, and before he drinks, he says, may the blood of Christ keep me safe for eternal life. Again, he doesn't say these prayers out loud. He says them in a very low voice. And then the last prayer that's a silent prayer or quiet prayer is while he's purifying the sacred vessels. So it's after communion and he's distributed communion. He goes back and he starts to clean or purify the vessels He prays this prayer while he's doing the purification. What has passed our lips as food, O Lord, may we possess in purity of heart that what has been given to us in time may be our healing for eternity. So another beautiful prayer. So it's interesting. I think most people don't know about these quiet prayers, the secret prayers. (laughs) So why would those be set apart as different or special? Or why would those not be proclaimed loudly with the other prayers? Because I think it's also important that the priest also be, in a sense, in silent, uh, in dialogue with the Lord. Okay. During Mass, just one-on-one. Uh-huh. You know, I, I feel like uh, most of the prayers I offer aloud and yeah. everyone hears them. But it's also a time where it's also one-on-one. You know, and a lot of those are like about cleansing me. 
Yeah. You know, like. It's like, more personal it's than more, communal. Right, right. Because I'm, as a priest, you know, I'm the one actually holding the host in my hands. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the, the instrument of the great act of transubstantiation. That's a very uh, amazing and awesome thing mm-hmm. that I, I'm also saying some private prayers to the Lord. All right. Well, I had no idea there was that many different of these uh, private yeah. or silent prayers. So yeah. thank you for sharing. Sure. If you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have some questions about the Synod for the Amazon and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and I will be asking questions that you have submitted for Bishop to answer. Our first question, I've heard a lot about the Synod for the Amazon recently. Can you explain what it is? Yeah, um, you know, when we have a Synod of Bishops, it's when there's a a group of bishops. A A lot of the Synods are world Synod of Bishops, so there's representative of bishops from around the world. But there also have been some special synods for particular regions of the world. You might remember Pope John Paul II had a synod for America. He had a synod for the country of Lebanon. When there's particular, I would say, issues that need to be addressed that of real importance in a particular geographic area of the world, mm-hmm. the Pope may have a special synod, a meeting of those bishops. So the Amazon region that involves parts of various countries in South America, you know, uh, Bolivia and Brazil, uh, Colombia, Ecuador, Guyana, Peru, Venezuela, so and a few other countries. So it's a really important area of the world, um, very Catholic area, and but there's some big challenges there. So Pope Francis announced a couple years ago that he was going to have this special synod. So bishops from those countries, and then he also invites a few bishops from other countries to come as well to okay. be part of it, but it's primarily the bishops of that region. Sure. And the reason this is so important, uh, according to Pope Francis, is you know there's a lot of indigenous people in the Amazon who are experiencing destruction or exploitation of their natural environment, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of challenges there, a lot of poverty, and there's challenges to evangelization. Very few priests. And it's a very large region, but it's a lot of these native indigenous peoples, native populations. There's, I think in the Amazon region, there's like 400 different tribes and over 200 different languages. Hmm. So, I mean, it's a very diverse area, but an area that's also important for the environment because the Amazon basin, as we know, is a really important source of um, oxygen, et cetera, Mm -hmm. for, for, for the earth. And, you know, when there's deforestation or there's destruction of the natural environment, that's not only harmful for the people living there, but it's also harmful for the human family. So those are all the different things. And also the evangelization, because mm-hmm. there's, these are areas where it's sometimes very hard to reach. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people who, who aren't receiving the gospel or very rarely have a priest to celebrate the Eucharist. Though the church has been present there for for centuries, 
it's still a very challenging area, a missionary area. So the Synod will be looking at all those things. It's a three-week Synod in October. I think it begins on October 6th. Um, there's some controversy because of the the preparatory document, the document in preparation for the syn- Synod, where it talks about the shortage of priests So in some of these remote populations. So mm-hmm. one of the things that's on the agenda is to see if this might be an exception where they might allow for the ordination of married priests, what they call viri probati. This would be older men who have already, like our stable Christian Catholic leaders in the community, allowing their ordination. That's a very controversial thing that they'll be talking about. Uh, That's gotten a lot of the press, actually, about the Synod is this proposal. And who knows what, what the bishops will come up with and then it would have to have the uh, approval of the pope there's also another theme of the role of women in the church and then the rights of the indigenous peoples and respecting their traditions for example hmm. so there's a lot of things they'll be discussing it should be very interesting um i really think it's an important yeah. um these people are part of the body of christ and um there's a lot of uh challenges in the amazon today I think it seems like some people are afraid of this discussion of what might come from it. And is that how you feel at all? I do. I think, you know, you know, some are thinking, Oh, this will bring heresy. Uh Uh, And I don't have that fear. I mean, I don't, I mean, (laughs) it's, I think it's somewhat exaggerated. Uh, You know, we'll have to see. I mean, I trust the Holy Spirit's guidance. We pray for the success of this synod. And I think we have to look at the big picture. We're talking about evangelization, and we're talking about uh, care of the environment, and we're talking about the rights of these indigenous people right. that are, have sometimes been trampled upon. And I had never really thought about this question until reading it. I thought, oh, that is a good question. What do we mean when we say our exile in the Hail Holy Queen prayer? Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us. And after this, our exile, show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. So our exile is that we're not home. You know, I was talking earlier about the exile of John Chrysostom. Mm -hmm. He was exiled from his home in Constantinople. Well, our home is in heaven. So we can talk about our time on earth as a time of exile. We're not yet home. That's what it refers to. All right. Patrick Wheeler from St. John the Evangelist Parish in Goshen asks, are we required to believe in theology of the body? Interesting question. Well, I think a lot of the theology, well, a good part of it, what it's based on are basic teachings of the Catholic faith Mm -hmm. about marriage, about sexuality. Yes, those are things that we are required to believe, but it's a theology. So Pope John Paul is elaborating and giving different interpretations, very creative from Holy Scripture. So you're not required to believe everything about the, uh, the particular interpretations that the Holy Father gave. But the fundamental teachings of it, yes, because they're fundamental Catholic teaching. I mean, I believe all, I think it's a rich theology, Mm -hmm. but 
we're not required to believe everything John Paul as a theologian spoke about. Okay. But as Pope, when he talked about the doctrine of the church, mm-hmm. that has to be, that's we're obliged to believe. But you don't see any errors in it or no. any reason not to believe anything right, that's in right. the body. I think body. it's great. I love the theology of the body. I, I, I accept it all, yeah. All right. Someone asked, do we know when the Bible was written? That's an interesting question. I mean, it was written at different times. It wasn't like within a few years. Um, <laughs> you know, you'd have to look at the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament developed between the year 1200 B.C., Mm-hmm. and about 165 BC. Okay. So we're talking a little over a thousand years mm-hmm. for the writing of the Old Testament because different books and written at different times, uh, different parts of the book, books written at different times. So basically 1200 to 165 BC. Now the New Testament books um, were basically written in the first century. The earliest books would probably be about 60 AD mm-hmm. up to probably 90 AD, although some of it was also even prior where th- you know, things were written down and then later put together sure. into the books. So really first century AD for the New Testament. All right. Another listener asked, are there different levels in heaven? Does your faithfulness on earth earn you a certain level in heaven? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question. When you look at our tradition, going back to the words of Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 14, he says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms mm-hmm. or many mansions. You know, it depends on the translation. And it's really been a tradition. You know, go. I remember, uh, you know, when you look back at St. Augustine, he referenced these different rooms, these different mansions, which are different degrees of rewards in heaven. Mm-hmm. And then St. Thomas Aquinas, the other great, another great doctor of the church, he agreed with that. So I think there's a, a strong tradition. We even see it at the Council of Florence in the uh, 15th century about when we're in heaven and we behold God face to face, that some people will behold God more perfectly than others according to to the difference of their merits. Hmm. That's what the Council of Florence said. And then in the Second Vatican Council, we read, all of us in varying degrees and in different ways share in the same charity towards God and our neighbors, and we all sing the one hymn of glory to our God. So it's referring to the life of the redeemed in heaven Beholding God in varying degrees, mm-hmm. as Council Florence said, according to the worth of our lives, according to the difference of our merits. So it's kind of like beholding our beloved, and maybe it's according to the level of our love. But the, the big thing is all of us will be fulfilled mm-hmm. in heaven. I mean, we shouldn't worry about that. It's perfect union with God. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's heaven. Um, it's the perfect life with the most holy trinity. We all will have the beatific vision, God willing, that we go to heaven, uh, that we'll be able to contemplate God in his heavenly glory. But how, you know, it might be according to, it sounds from our tradition that there would be degrees of heavenly bliss, so to speak. Is it almost like we would have different capacities and we would all be full? 
but some of us could hold more love than others or something like that. Yeah. I think um, that's a good way of explaining okay. it, Kyle. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, or you can also find past episodes of this show. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And we have questions about receiving communion as a non-Catholic, confession over the phone, and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and I have a whole bunch of questions that people have submitted for Bishop to answer. Someone asked, I'm a non-Catholic who is still exploring the faith. I've attended Mass in the past. If, while at Mass, I decide that I believe the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, can, slash should, I receive it? Or, as a non-Catholic, should I refrain and wait until I make the commitment to go through RCIA and join the church properly? Thanks for that question. The answer is pretty simple. You should refrain. In order to receive the Holy Eucharist in the Catholic Church, one must be in full communion with the church. Mm -hmm. In other words, one must profess the faith, but not only faith in the Eucharist, but all the elements of our faith, and therefore one needs to come into full communion with the Catholic Church. So you'd have to go through the catechesis required. If, if the person said he or she is non-Catholic, I'm not clear if the person's baptized or not, but you obviously have to be baptized, mm -hmm. but also you have to um, enter into full communion in the church through baptism or through a profession of faith. And then you also should receive confession, the sacrament of penance, mm -hmm. if you're above seven years old before you receive the Holy Eucharist, because it's important to be in the state of grace. All right. We had a follow-up question from the September 18th show on immigrants and refugees. Is it a sin for a family to enter the U.S. illegally? Well, first of all, I, the answer to that would uh, be no, because entering illegally or without documents, but in order for either survival or to escape persecution or for economic reasons uh, to um, it, that would not be a sin. I mean, it's uh, as a matter of fact, it may be an obligation for some people if they can't have basic needs of life to provide for their family. Mm -hmm. There is a right to migrate according to Catholic teaching. Okay. But I guess if they had the means and were just looking to break the law, that might be a different situation. Yeah, I, I, you know, when you break a just law, that could be a sin. Yeah. It's a breaking a just law. So it would be wrong mm -hmm. and could be sinful. Definitely. But it's what I was talking about is, you know, I think most who come in the United States, they're coming out of need. Right. So I think you would have to look at each, uh, each situation. Yeah. Okay. Someone asked, what do you think is the most common myth about the Catholic church? There's a lot of them. <laughs> um, there is a book, by the way, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, Kyle, called the seven big myths about the catholic church have you seen that okay i'm not sure it's by christopher kazor who i really like he's uh -huh. written some other good books it's hard to you know say which is the biggest myth one of them is perhaps the, the idea that the church opposes science mm -hmm. or that the church hates gay people mm -hmm. or the church 
hates women or, you know, opposes same-sex marriage because of bigotry. I mean, those Mm -hmm. are all fallacies. Those are all lies about the Catholic Church. So I think there are a number of myths out there that Catholics worship Mary. I mean, there's just a lot. Or myths about Catholic teaching, and they're used against us when they're really just fiction. They're not true. Right. Do you get a lot of that feedback from people, people complaining about things, and it's just a misunderstanding? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say a lot. I get some. It depends on what's going on in the news sometimes. Um, But I think uh, the bigotry thing is probably one of the most recent ones. You know, the idea that the Catholic Church is bigoted because we don't accept same-sex marriage or we don't accept sex change operations or Mm -hmm. things like that, that we're not following kind of the contemporary agenda on some of these moral issues. So that those are unfair mischaracterizations. I feel like a lot of those fall under the concept of tolerance as well. Yeah. How, what's the best way to respond to those when, when people yeah. get upset well, with this? Well, I just correct them. I mean, uh-huh. I do in a nice way, correct. I explain why we oppose same-sex marriage. And when I do, people will almost always say, oh, okay, I understand. You're not really bigoted. You know, because uh-huh. I profess how we recognize the human dignity of those who have homosexual inclinations mm-hmm. and we love them as brothers and sisters, etc. But we we don't believe in same-sex marriage because mm-hmm. we really, the purpose of marriage, the meaning of marriage, according to God and God's law and the teaching of the church is that it's a union of one man and one woman in a total communion of life and love that's open to the procreation of children. So it's something impossible for mm-hmm. two people of the same sex. I find that all of these myths really are propagated by those who have another agenda that they're pushing. Sure. Some of it's coming from anti-Catholicism. Mm-hmm. You know, so. All right. Another great question. Why did Jesus tell people not to tell anybody else about the miracles he performed? Yeah, our Lord did that sometimes. Um, I don't think our Lord wanted them to focus on his miracles so much as his his teaching, the message that he was proclaiming. He, he performed miracles for a reason, to help people, obviously, but mm-hmm. also they were a revealing of his divinity. But he knew that if there was too, so much publicity over some of the miracles he performed, it could hinder his mission and, and uh, divert people away from his message. Mm-hmm. And also, he had a mission to accomplish. And if all that got out too soon early on, he, we wouldn't have had his three years of public preaching mm-hmm. that is so important. He would have been put to death earlier, I think. Uh-huh. All right. Finally, could a confession be heard over the phone? And how about over text message? No and no. Okay. Has to be faced it has to be in person. Okay. You why, cannot do it on the phone. Why yeah. would that be? Or because it's um the priest is there in the person of Christ and one is confessing their sins directly to a person. It's not through an electronic or uh means because it's a personal encounter with Christ through the agency of his priest. And you would be putting up another barrier uh, by, and there's also all kinds of other dangers that would be involved. 
hmm. you know, the eavesdropping mm -hmm. or where the seal wouldn't be. And if it's a text message, I mean, that can be seen by somebody else. So sure. you want to guarantee the absolute secrecy and confidentiality. But even beyond that, I th it, it has to be in person. Yeah, I think it's just by the nature of the sacrament. All right. Thank you so much, Bishop, for a, another great episode. And thank you again for all of those that supported us during our share last week. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Listen next week for a special episode on communism, socialism, and other forms of government. Bishop will be joined by special guest, Dr. Lance Ritchie from the University of St. Francis. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services that save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.